I'm so glad you guys are here, that we're, get, we're doing this thing together, we're doing life together. Thank you guys for being a part of church this morning. Um, and again, if uh, you're a visitor, we're so honored that you decided to come this way and be a part of this this morning. Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. We have them in baskets down by your feet, and uh, you should be able to find one. And we're, we're going to spend some time this morning in Luke chapter 19. And if you grab one of the Bibles down in the basket, you'll find Luke 19 on page 852, 852. What we're doing is a, a series right now, and it's called Who's Your One? And we are sp- specifically thinking about people that we know and that we love, and we want them to know our Savior. And so we are identifying them, we are praying for them, we are thinking and strategizing for inviting them into some different opportunities, things like the Daryl Strawberry Weekend that'll come at the end of September, or the parking lot party in September, or to church on a Sunday morning. But we're looking for opportunities to pray for and invest in these real people, and, uh, and then what we're doing together on Sunday mornings is we're jumping into the Bible and we're watching as Jesus would have these conversations with different individuals. And what he would do is he'd have these one-on-ones and he would present the message of salvation according to the need of that heart. And so we're looking at that going, okay, what can we learn from, from those different episodes and what can we take from that so that we would be better at sharing our faith with our friends? And so that's what we're up to, and this morning we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. Uh, Just by a show of hands, how many of you guys have sung about him in Sunday school? All right, all right, so you know the little wee little man dude, but we're going to look at his story, and we're going to to learn some things, uh, hopefully, from his story this morning. So let's read it, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is Luke 19, starting in verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. God, right now, we want to hear your voice. We want you through your word, God, by your spirit to communicate to our hearts. And we want to be changed by it, God. Um, as I've been praying this week, I really want you to take this time captive. And, and I pray, God, that you would make us a community that actually practices what the word prescribes. God, we don't just want to talk about the idea of identifying people we love and sharing our faith with them and We don't just want to talk about that, God. We actually want to do it. And so we're asking that this time would be committed to helping us to think more clearly about how to go about it. And then, Lord, would you inspire us and give us confidence to go actually have these conversations. So, Lord, as we look at your word, would you help us to see this beautiful salvation, this invitation to look on you and believe and live. 
And would you help us, God, to share that, to proclaim that to anyone who would listen to us? We pray in your name. Amen. We're going to ask two questions this morning and allow for the text and the story, hopefully, to give us our answers. So the two questions are, what does this story teach us about salvation? I think there's something here for that. I think it shows us about the nature of salvation. And the second question we will ask is, what does the story teach us about evangelism, about sharing that salvation with other people? So let's get to work. What does the story teach us about salvation? The first thing that I notice is that salvation is accessible to the unlikely. That if you're reading the story, you notice that Zacchaeus is somebody who has a stigma about him. That his vocation and what he's chosen to do with his life and all these different things lead him to be somebody who, in the eyes of the community, he's an undesirable person. We, we, we find the crowd looking on him with disdain. They're looking at him like, this guy is sketchy, he's, he's crooked, he's, he's in the wrong, and I can't believe that God would want anything to do with him. So let's look at him. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now there's, there's a part of the problem right there. He was a tax collector. And when you guys get your tax bills, what, what happens? Ugh, right? You look at it and you go, okay, I know I need to pay this. I don't want to. And a lot of us in Illinois are going, hmm, why do we live here? And there's this mass exodus, right, of taxes. And the Bible tells us taxes are good, they're okay, that Christians need to be good at paying them. Um, but this individual, he's actually collecting taxes, not for something that would immediately benefit the community, but he's now in relationship with this foreign entity. And so when he collects taxes, it's not for the people, it's for this other nation. And he was able to line his pockets then and, and uh, become very wealthy, and especially as the chief tax collector. And so everyone looks at this guy, Zacchaeus, and they think this is shady, and this vocation has become synonymous with, with sinfulness. So, so when people talk about sketchy people, they talk about sinners and tax collectors, right? Sinners and tax collectors, they are the kind of people you stay away from. I don't want my kid to grow up and be a tax collector. And so what do we find? Zacchaeus, a tax collector, in our story, being engaged by the Lord himself. And we find then that salvation comes to the unlikely. He wants to visit Jesus. And I was thinking about this. Why is there a parade going by? But then I remembered that when we go to Meyer and we look at the rack and there's all the celebrities and what they're up to, and we read the headlines and we're like, huh, fascinating. And we go online and we read about it. There's this intrigue about these different people. Or if we want to know about politicians, we hop on a news feed and we read about what they're up to and their campaigns and different things like that. They didn't have that back then. So if a famous person was coming by, this was kind of their opportunity to engage in that sort of way out of curiosity to go up and go, oh, here's this religious dude who's traveling by. So everyone's going to show up so that they could look on him and his group and they could, you know, hear about what he's up to. And so he goes and he can't see because the crowd is there and he's short and the crowd doesn't like him. So they're not just going to part ways so that he can walk up and see. So he runs ahead and climbs up into a tree, into a sycamore fig tree. And then Jesus walks right there and he looks up and he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm coming to your house today. And it's this wild little interaction. He welcomes him gladly. He receives him into his home. But what does the crowd do? What does the crowd do? They're upset. 
They look at this and they go, this is inappropriate. This guy is not the kind of guy you want to be spending your time with. And if you're a good religious person, you shouldn't even be around him. Let's look at the, the, the text there in verse 7. All the people saw this, that he was going into the home of Zacchaeus, that Jesus was going to go there, and that he was welcomed gladly. And they began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. There's this crowd mentality then that's saying, there are certain people who are acceptable, and there are certain people who are unacceptable. And the problem that we have is we often drift toward this same way of thinking. That when we think about God's goodness, we start to describe the kinds of people who would receive that goodness. And what do they look like? Us. The kind of people that God aims his favor at, surprisingly look an awful lot like us. And then people who are known to be sinners and making poor choices and have gotten themselves maybe into a vocation that's a little bit sketchy, we look at them and we go, we don't want anything to do with them. They're, they're dangerous. They're not safe. They're making poor choices. We don't want to catch what they have. And, and we begin to interact with people in this unhealthy way. But again, salvation comes to the unlikely. Jesus moves toward him. He, he invites himself over. He spends time eating with them. Now, here's one of my concerns. As a church, I want to make sure that we are creating a safe place for people like Zacchaeus. If Zacchaeus were to come to church this morning, and maybe you're here, and you know, you're just thinking, I shouldn't be here, and you start looking around at everyone, and you go, everyone's got their life put together. Everyone's got this thing figured out. I, I shouldn't be here. We need to create an environment that's safe for people like Zacchaeus, where they feel like Jesus is there. He's opening his arms to them saying, I know your name. I want to spend time with you. I love you. That's what we need to do. And too often, I think we can create the exact opposite experience, that people can come in here and have that vibe that they have to be good enough. A good friend of the family, he came to our church. It's been, it's been a while now. He lives up by Madison, so he just can't pop in whenever. Uh, he worked at the tree farm and after he came to church that one time, he said, I'm just happy the building didn't fall on my head, right? Because he just felt like, I don't belong here. This isn't my place. And I, you know, I've made all these poor choices. I can't believe God didn't just like collapse the building on me. But, but another fact of, another feature about that experience was he came and he felt welcomed. And that's what we're aiming for. We want, we want Zacchaeus to come in and for them to feel like Jesus is there waiting for them and that he wants to spend time with them. Salvation is accessible to the unlikely. The second thing we learn about salvation here is that it involves an encounter with Jesus himself. When we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about an idea. We're not just saying people can be saved. It's kind of a category you might mark on a survey. I'm a saved Christian. It's actually an encounter with a person, with Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that Jesus came, and this was his mission this is what he was doing. He was rescuing people, redeeming people, saving people, but it is through their encounter with him. And so we see it in verse 9 when Jesus offers up his mission statement in verses 9 and 10. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. We're being told here, this is what Jesus is about. He is all about, his mission is about rescuing and redeeming. It is about finding those who are lost, who are far from God, and welcoming them into the family through faith in him. 
So this is what Jesus is all about. And as a church, we got to be all about this. We're trying to introduce people to the Savior so that they could experience him personally and they could trust in him and find the salvation that he offers. So this is his mission statement, seeking and saving the lost. We learn that salvation involves encountering Jesus. Here's the third thing we learn about salvation. Salvation comes in response to repentance. Now that's a Bible word and needs to be defined, but repentance is when you, often these are some features about it. It's when you acknowledge sin. When you recognize God is holy and I'm not, that he has a standard for my life and I'm not meeting that. And I'm not even capable of meeting that. There's an acknowledgement of that gap. That's, that's part of repentance. It's one of the first elements of it. And then it's often it's confessing that sin. It's naming it and saying, look, this is true of me and I'm naming this. Not only do I recognize that gap there between God and myself, but I admit it and I confess it openly to God and maybe to others as well. And then there's asking for forgiveness. You're saying, God, could you forgive me? Because you want this and I'm not doing that. You're asking God for forgiveness. And then there's an element of turning. It's turning away from that sinful way and toward God and being received gladly. Now, I say right here that salvation comes in response to repentance, but you might look at the story and go, Cor, where do you see that? Where do you find repentance in the story? It doesn't sound like Zacchaeus is doing any of what you just described. It doesn't sound like he's turning from something and turning toward God. But this week while I was studying, I, I came across this. The rabbis, the teachers back then, people would ask them, how do you know if somebody's repentance is sincere? Because you guys know this to be true. Somebody can apologize. They can say that they're sorry, but they don't intend to change. People can ask for forgiveness, but they don't even feel they've done anything wrong. And people can do that in their relationship with God, can't they? That they can repent, but they have no intention of ever doing anything differently. And so people would ask the teachers, how do you know if somebody's repentance is sincere? How do you know if it's actually a heartfelt reality that they are repentant or not? And the rabbi said, here's how you can tell. And I'm just going to paraphrase. They basically said, look at how they deal with their money. You know that repentance is sincere when it changes how somebody deals with their money, especially in regard to other people. When they cancel debts, when they, when they, when they don't charge interest. That's when the rabbis would say, repentance is real. Well, what does Zacchaeus do in our story? Let's look at it. Zacchaeus in verse 8, after this meal, he stands up. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What is he doing? He's expressing that after having this meal with Jesus, his life is different. It is immediately different. From this point forward, right away, half of his resources are being given away, distributed to the poor. And then he's going to go back, and if he's done anything to anybody, he's going to repay that, whatever injury has happened, four times the amount. Whatever loss has been suffered, four times the amount. Here's what he's saying. This meal has been so significant in my life that I spent time with you. My life is markedly different now. You can see that in the way I'm going to handle my finances. 
I'm going to, I'm going to act on, I'm going to turn toward you, and it's going to show up in the way that I do life. So I think we find Zacchaeus doing a deep level of repentance here, that just by having this meal, and by the way, how does this repentance come? Jesus doesn't say, hey, dude, come down from that tree. I'm coming to your house. Okay, uh, we're having a meal together, but I just need you to know you're a bum. You are such a sinner. Stop taking people's money. That's wrong. Stop lining your pockets with other people's resources. Stop inflicting harm. You are a bad dude. No, he doesn't do that. He loves him. He shares with him. He, he interacts with him. And that is the transformative event. It changes Zacchaeus on the spot. It reminds me of a passage from Romans where it says the loving kindness of God leads us to repentance. Sometimes what we need for people that we love is to not scold them and to not try to highlight their sin, which they're well aware of, but it's to love them with the love of Christ so that immediately they come into that reality. I've got to change. Because of Jesus, because of his love for me, I need to surrender my life to him and change. So Jesus then declares in verse 9, Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come. Zacchaeus is able to be made right with God in that moment because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And when you start to look at this then, it's a living example of of actually a teaching that Jesus just gave. When you're reading the Bible, one of the most important things to do is to look at the context. So if you ever want to pick up Bible reading, here's lesson number one. When you're reading, pay attention to what's going on. Pay attention to what's coming before and after and how those things kind of fit together. Because in the Bible, what will often happen is God arranges the material and the story so that they communicate true events like this one, but it does it in a way to help us know something about God. And in, so I, I didn't see this before, but this week I noticed it. In the previous chapter, Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable that he tells and then the, the two characters actually show up on the scene. He tells a story about two different people, and then, lo and behold, those two people show up. And we see how Jesus interacts with both of them. What's the parable about? You can look at it with me. It's just chapter 18. It's a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector going up to a temple to pray. Two people go up to a temple to pray, and the Pharisee is a religious individual, a good person, a person who has committed himself to doing the things of God, And he goes up to pray, and he begins to pray like this. God, thank you that I'm not like other people, like evildoers and murderers and adulterers, that I'm not like that tax collector, because the other character is a tax collector. Thank you that I'm not like him. The tax collector, Jesus says, stands off at a distance. And he doesn't look up to the heavens, but he beats his chest. And he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, only one of those guys gets to go home justified before God. And it's the tax collector. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. Here's what he's teaching. If you want to experience the salvation of God, if you want to be right with God, there has to be this humility about you. And just because you're a good person doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you're trying to obey the rules and clean your life up doesn't mean you understand by faith what God is offering to you in the person and work of Jesus. So, Then you keep moving through the next couple chapters. What do you find? A rich person who loves the Bible. A rich person who says, okay, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, how do you read the commandments? 
I've been keeping those since I was a boy. And then Jesus prescribes that deeper level of here's what it really means to surrender. And he says, no, thank you. That's too much. That's ridiculous. And he walks away empty-handed in the sense that he still has his stuff, but he doesn't have the real value. He walks away. Now a tax collector shows up on the scene, a chief tax collector. This is the sinner of all sinners, right? This guy is a bad dude. And what does he do? Jesus moves toward him. They share a meal together. Zacchaeus humbles himself. He trusts in Jesus. And we have then this living example of what faith really means. It really means that you surrender to this person and work of Jesus and what he has done. So if you want that, what is it telling us? What, is it, what are all these stories kind of piecing them together? What is it suggesting? If you want to be saved, you have to humble yourself. You have to recognize your need. You have to call out to God. You have to trust that what Jesus did is enough. And if you are putting forward all these good things you do and you go, man, I've, I'm at church. I'm at church. That's got to count for something. I'm a good person. I'm not trying to be shady or sketchy. I'm just a good person. You, by those good things, you might actually be keeping salvation at an arm's length. Because you keep thinking, this is the way that I'm right with God. And God is suggesting, no, if you want to be right with me, you trust in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. So we learn a lot about salvation, don't we? We learn that salvation comes to the unlikely, that it comes in response to repentance, that it's something that we need to humble ourselves and receive freely from the person of Jesus himself. Now, what, here's the second question we have. What does this teach us then about evangelism? So if we have this awesome message and we want people to experience it, what do we learn from the example of Jesus here of how to share that with other people? I think there are at least four things here. Here's the first. We learn that we need to graciously move toward sinners who are in need, which is the exact opposite of what we're comfortable with. Often as Christians, we, we kind of recoil and we step back. And if we find out somebody's doing stuff wrong, we kind of feel like, oh, I don't know how I can help them. But we need to learn how to move toward them. That's exactly what Jesus does in this story. While everyone else is kind of elbowing Zacchaeus out and saying, man, this guy is a bad guy. Jesus is intentionally moving toward him. Who are the people in your life that when you think about them, you don't really like them, you don't have a desire to move toward them. Jesus might be calling you in this moment to start taking steps toward them because we need to be people who are investing in those who are far from God. Jesus wants us to do life in proximity with other people who are needy, with sinners, with people who, who they're not going to fit in on a Sunday morning but we go to them, we go to where they're at, and we take initiative, and we try to make space for them. Um, we try to be intentional with, with our lives, just pouring into how can I interact with people who are far from God, and how can I get them into environments where they would come to know this love of God in the person and work of Jesus. When we were launching the campus, the coaching uh, was talking about the importance of me spending my time with leaders and the lost, leaders in the lost. So people who are in key ministry positions and lost people, and they said, here's what you should probably be doing. Spend, spend a quarter of your time with, with lost people. Do you know what that looks like? I mean, just easy math for the sake of ease. If it's a 44-hour work week, 11 hours with people who are far from God. And I, you know, I struggle with that because I fill my time with meetings with other believers and other pastors and things like that. But 
but it, it's important. We need to be strategic that we would be in the proximity of other people who are far from God. How are you doing that? Some of you say, that's easy. 40 hours a week, check, right? My team, far from God. My workplace, far from God, easy peasy. But I want to suggest a lot of us don't really engage that intentionally. Yeah, it's easy to say you spend that time, but are you spending it in the posture that Jesus has here? Moving toward other people, loving them, serving them, blessing them, and looking for opportunities to share the love of God in Christ Jesus with them. So we need to learn how to move toward people who are far from God. The second lesson that we learn, and we we see it here in the story, is the importance of hospitality. Hospitality. Now it's backwards in our story because all of the, you know, Jesus is marching along and Zacchaeus would never have an opportunity to say to Jesus, hey, can you come to my place? So Jesus has to break all kinds of social conventions and say, I'm coming over today and we're going to have a meal. And some of us need to do that with our friends as well. I'm coming over, we're going to spend time together and I'm going to love on you. Um, But there's hospitality. There's a meal that's being shared. There's um, you know, this interaction, and it is profound. It changes the life of this individual. Hospitality, I think, will often play a large role in effective evangelism. The studies are pointing in this direction too. Barna Group did some research. It's a Christian organization that surveys thousands and thousands of people, and they came away with this insight from one of their studies on evangelism. People who are far from God are very, very open to the idea of hospitality. That they think, if a Christian was ever going to have any influence on me, it would be through their willingness to open their homes, open their lives, open their tables, and spend time with me. They're, they're willing. They're eager. We need to become people who take advantage of that. Say, look, I'm gonna, our house is a mission sta- station. We're going to use this as a base to try to get the message of Jesus Christ to as many people in our neighborhood. So hospitality, I think, is going to be a big, big part of it. And I think we've got to get better and better at it. Here's just a, another little piece of information from Barna, and it's I'm just trying to encourage you. I think this is a a really important strategy. In another study that they did on households of faith, and that's actually the name of the study, here's what they found. They surveyed all kinds of families with believers in it, and they said, what are the best practices so that the household is spiritually healthy, so that kids grow up in that healthy environment, and they become believers, and they maintain their their faith in Christ even into adulthood. Here's another just little takeaway from that study. Hospitality was another key feature. When kids saw their parents living out the faith in real time, when they saw them loving on people who are far from God, when they saw that this wasn't just something you do on Sunday, but it's a way of life, that had a profound effect on young people. So hospitality is, for a lot of different reasons, it's a good thing to practice. But I think if we're going to be good at sharing the message of salvation, we need to move toward this this opportunity that we have with hospitality. All right, here's here's the third thing that we learn about evangelism. Evangelism is more effective when we learn to honor people. When we look at somebody, instead of saying, instead of labeling them, you're a sketchy sinner, we actually look through that and we look into the image of God placed in them. And we figure out a way to honor them, where we say, this person that God made, that God loves, I'm not just trying to convert them, because that's what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to pay attention, and I'm going to notice that God has placed in them good things. 
And my job then is to help recover that. I had a professor who put it this way. He said, often in our evangelism, we don't go back far enough. He said, we start with Genesis chapter three. What is Genesis chapter three? Sin. And we want to tell people sin is the problem. That's where our relationship with God was affected. He said, we got to go further back. We got to do Genesis one and two. God made us in his image. And sin has affected that. It has marred that. But when we're looking at people, we should be thinking there is something intrinsically good and dignified in them. And my job then is to be on a grace hunt and find it. And when I find that, I'm going to celebrate that. This is the image of God in you. Before I ever begin to explain sin and what that means and all of that, I think that evangelism is more effective when we learn to honor people. We see Jesus doing that in our story, right? He, this guy that everyone else is writing off, he says, would you welcome me into your home? Meaning you can provide a meal for me. It's actually a very humble thing for Jesus to do. I'm going to eat your food. I'm going to hang out with you. I'm going to spend time with you in your routine. You have something to offer me. I dignify you. I honor you. We need to be thinking about the people who are far from God, wondering how can we honor them? How can we better notice the handprint of God in their life, the fingerprints of God in their life? And how can we celebrate that and honor that? Here's the last thing, and we'll wrap up. The last thing I want to say about evangelism that I, that I think is here in the text is just the importance of Jesus. Having talked about all these different things, hospitality, honoring people, all this other stuff, I don't want to lose the main thing. Here's the main thing. It is telling people about the saving work of Jesus. At the end of the day, that's what really, really matters. We want to proclaim salvation in Jesus Christ. And so if you, if you take nothing away from this morning, take that. We want to be the kind of place that invites people to experience Jesus in a profound way that could change their life and all of their eternity. And so we need to be telling people that news of God's love and his forgiveness and his grace and his hope and his restoration and all that he offers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to wrap up in just a moment. I'm going to invite the band to come and I'm going to pray. And a really exciting thing is going to happen this morning. When we finish our service, we're going to march out to um, the commons area. So if you've got kids, you can go quickly and get them. But we're going to do a couple baptisms. And uh, we're going to do them right out there. And it's um, Sarah and Emily saying they trust the Savior. And so we're going to do that in just a moment. But I want to invite all of us to kind of take, a, take inventory. And so I'm going to ask that you would stand right now. And I'm going to pray. And uh, I'm going to pray along a couple different lines. But please stand. And I'm going to pray about those who have yet to trust the Savior. And then I'm going to pray for all of us that we would be gospel ambassadors. Lord, right now, would you search our hearts? God, for anyone who's kind of been a good person, but never really surrendered to you, never humbled themselves and acknowledged their need for salvation, God, would you, in this moment, by your loving kindness, draw them to yourself? Invite them, welcome them, and help them, God, to take that step of faith, to surrender to you and experience salvation. God, I pray that people this morning would, would make that move, that they could you know, have, have a moment, a day that they could look back on and say, I gave my life to Christ on this day. 
God, I pray that you by your spirit would be doing that profound work in people's hearts right now. And like we've been praying, God, we want to actually do what your word prescribes. Help us to be more like Christ. Help us to share the message of salvation. Help us to open our homes and our lives and move toward instead of away from people who are in need. Help us to love well and be a welcoming community. God, we, we want our week to be changed because we've spent this time together this morning. Help us to be bold. Give us gospel confidence. Remove fear and anxiety and worry and instead replace that with joy and passion and confidence that you, God, are a saving God. And we want everyone to know that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.